Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Transforming Perceptions and Transforming Perceptions is brought to you by the ACT Multicultural Mental Health Network. People with lived experience of mental illness, carers, consumers from multicultural and migrant backgrounds. We are focused on promoting mental health and well-being in the Canberra region for people of multicultural refugee and migrant backgrounds. We offer a range of views on subjects that may have direct or indirect links to social, emotional and mental well-being with the aim of promoting destigmatisation of mental illness in the community. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of either the ACT Multicultural Mental Health Network or 2XX. We provide information on where to get help in the ACT region about any specific topic that may be discussed And we welcome your support, feedback and ideas for topics you would like us to cover in subsequent shows. And the show is also available on demand. Hopefully I've been able to set it up quickly enough. I had So I had challenges at home trying to set up the on-demand page, but I think I've done it now. We also podcast our shows and so you're welcome to have a look at that there through Anchor FM. Anyway, my name's Anya Natirina. I'm joined today by Associate Professor Geoffrey Louis. Afternoon, Jeff. G'day. Thanks for inviting me back again, Anya. We're here in the flesh. We are, face to face, <laughs> after a difficult year oh. for everyone. Tif- yeah, it's been a horrible year. I've got a song Have for you? us. Yes, I've got a song for us from the Beatles I'm going to go to in a minute. But we'll just quickly introduce our topic. Yes. We've got a couple of things we're going to talk about. Yes. Hopefully. I don't know how helpful I'll be on this. I've had a bit of a week. Yeah, And I had to take a break last weekend because the year has just, it's been too much for me. And uh, I know many people are over it. But uh, yes, when you're not feeling 100% and you need a break, well, that's what you've got to do. You've got to take a well-being break. And I took my own advice. I've had to do that a couple of times this year. And the reason for that, listeners, is because over this period of time I've lost... Uh, two of my presenters, one of them during the uh, bushfire crisis who uh, basically had to sort of care for his family. And, of course, we also had differences of opinion about how we should be doing the show, so sometimes it's better to part ways. Mm-hmm. And one of my other presenters, sadly, uh, David, has also had to have a t- take a long break. COVID's just really knocked people around, and I've been... I haven't had a break since uh, December 2018, so I'm looking forward to taking quite a long break from just before Christmas into the new year and we'll have to set up some sort of music or something for people to listen to. But I'm very grateful I'd been joined a few times by Naeem uh, Zamen this year who's done some meditations on air and talked about conscious living. And Associate Professor Geoffrey Louis, who's here with me today and who's just been great coming in the last few months and really been very supportive. And Jeff's been involved for a long time in the show and I'm incredibly grateful. So, yeah. Well, thank you for asking me back again. It's always great to be on your program to try and help out with communication for the community. It's a very important need, as, as, as you said, with a lot of issues that all of us, Australia has faced and internationally this year and it's been very hard because people have been basically flat out with caring for their families, working, keeping up to date with all the COVID updates, managing with the economic consequences and social consequences. 
Mm. Everyone's been really under the weather. Mm. Yeah, and some people who listen from interstate and even here too, we've had our we had our bushfire crisis with the smoke. Uh, I was very sick all the way through January, but had to keep coming in here uh, and doing shows. And then, you know, we we're all going around in our masks. Uh, then, of course, barely had we got through that. And then we had the COVID-19 and into the lockdown. And I've gained 12 kilos. I've just lost four, which mm-hmm. has been a big job. I've got nine to go. So for those of you out there who have gained weight, it's hard. I really sympathise with you, but it, it's so important. We've just got to strive to get the weight off and get back to walking and exercise. And I know that one of the accompanying things with gaining weight is a bit of depression. So, And that can make it harder to feel motivated, especially if you can't fit into your gym gear. <laughs> so so uh, sent my, my thoughts go to you people out there, but also people have lost their jobs or were, who were looking for work and now it's even harder to find a job. So there's been a lot to contend with, family far away, the people in Melbourne, of course, really mm. in Victoria, in Melbourne City area, region area there, uh, that must have been very difficult. And we know that there's been higher rates of depression and anxiety and presentations, uh, people calling Lifeline, uh, people in need, mm. and a bit more investment around that. But we're going to talk about the Productivity Commission report, Jeff. Yes, we'll yep. talk about it today. Now, Jeff's going to talk more than me because... I've had to, as I said, I had to take a break over the last week for myself and do gardening and things. Uh, And we're also going to have a look at another report, which is about dementia. Mm -hmm. And then there was a media release about uh, technology addiction, which has probably even been exacerbated by by the people being locked in their houses. And I've run into that many people. I have these little... Off, you know, conversations with people on the street and in the supermarket. I just had a chat with a lady today out at Bunnings, mm-hmm. um, and and many people noticing that their children or grandchildren are using technology a lot yes. more, and this is can be quite problematic. So we'll have a little chat about that at the very end. But we're going to go to a little piece of music so Jeff sure. and I can have a quick chat, and it is from the Beatles, and it's called. I'm so tired. (laughs) 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 And I thought it was the song for the end of the year. (laughs) So we'll go to that and then we'll be back. I'm so tired. I haven't slept a wink. I'm so tired. My mind is on the blink. I wonder should I get up? And fix myself a drink No, no, no I'm so tired I don't know what to do I'm so tired My mind is set on you I wonder should I call you But I know what you would do Blame you know it's three weeks I'm going insane you know 
Welcome back. You're listening to Transforming Perceptions. And no, we didn't go to Antarctica whilst that piece of music was on. <laughs> but it felt like that because the air conditioning in here is really cool. Anyway, over to you, Jeff, Productivity Commission. Thank what, you. Are, what are your thoughts? Are there any issues with that, it? What are the highlights? <laughs> thanks. Uh, I'll call upon some work we, uh, with colleagues, Professor Stephen Kisley. Stephen Allison, Tarun Bastian-Pillay and Dr. William Pring, we actually sent in an article to one of the journals yesterday and I'll use that as a basis for some of the background information about uh, the Productivity Commission. So the Australian Government commissioned the Productivity Commission to examine the effect of mental health on economic participation productivity in 2018. The draft mental health report was released for comment in November 2019 and the final report was only just released in late November uh, 2020. It's a 1,300-page report, and it makes recommendations across a wide range of areas relating to prevention, mental health care, and services beyond health and as well as workplaces. Now, the key issue that we identified with the report is that it is very uh, broad in its over, uh, overview, but also specifically focuses on economic participation and productivity. And that's perhaps the area where it's strongest in terms of looking at the social determinants of, of mental health and looking at the effects of unemployment as well as income support. And in this area, it is particularly to be commended that it is looking at factors that really impinge upon the healthcare of the community, and the men, particularly for people who live with a mental illness. The areas where it fails and has significant shortfalls are in relation to some of the clinical evidence base for the interventions that they're proposing, particularly in relation to prevention and early intervention, and a number of factors uh, which they've gathered under reorienting healthcare. Also, there is some concern about the models that they are going to use to fund health services in relation to mental health. And our biggest concern is about market-based commissioning, which again, we think recapitulates the problems that were seen in the UK when they tried to do purchase of provider systems for provision of mental health and introduces a whole level of complexity. So just to sort of go briefly through each area. In relation to pre prevention and early intervention, 
the emphasis on interventions directed at parents, children and youth persist despite limited evidence to, of the effectiveness. And these have, in fact, if anything, been expanded with r- relation to universal screening for perinatal mental illness in all parents, assessment of social and emotional development of, s- of children before they enter preschool, Im- implementation of social and emotional well-being programs, and online mental health services for tertiary students. There is also a significant omission in relation to the care for mature and older adults, that there isn't any mention of prevention and early intervention to any significant degree for middle-aged and older adults. The other issue is in relation to, to reorienting healthcare, and I'll, because there's a lot of areas in this to cover, I'll focus on those that are of concern in relation to uh, provision of healthcare, and particularly because obviously the policy group that we, I was working with, we're looking from the perspective of the practice of psychiatry, though it's a specialised area. And one of the astonishing things that we've noticed is that the expertise of the Productivity Commission is in the economic and uh, employment-related factors relating to mental health, uh, yet it's drifted over into giving recommendations about clinical practice, including um, directly intervening, stating that all mental health prescriptions should have a statement included that clinicians have discussed possible side effects and proposed evidence-based alternatives to medication. Now, on face value, this may be arguing for people's rights, but it's also, in a way, interfering in what doctors do on a day-to-day basis. We don't just sheet home to look at medications when we discuss care with patients, and that's actually a disservice to say to GPs that, they, they don't consider other factors because the most of the initial mental health assessments are through GPs and GPs are well aware of lifestyle factors and other things that may impinge. Yeah, certainly that's my experience when I see my GP. She looks at my issues quite holistically and I, I know that we've sort of had a move to that over the, the last many years with GPs having specialised training to yeah. be more aware that mental health or well-being issues are not just associated with the need for medication. It could be other sort of choices or changes or they could be having a a somatic, an issue that's a physical issue that's more related to something, a stressor in that person's life. So they need to unpack and unravel that. Absolutely. Yeah. Agreed. And I I think that 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 sort of overreach is, uh, is of concern because it's not an area that the Productivity Commission is necessarily strong on from an intellectual basis. And it's part of the doctor-patient or the, the medical uh, relationship with the, in terms of the interactions where we discuss on a day to, day-to-day basis a collaborative, in a collaborative manner about benefits and side effects of all treatments, including medications. Because contrary to people's uh, belief, in fact, therapy that's not targeted accurately or insufficiently skilled in its delivery, that can also harm. Psychological therapy can, can in fact, harm people. So we have to think about all the aspects, including people's fitness, well-being, social connections. And I think that was an overreach. Of graver concern is their proposal, which is, in a way, technological but also technocratic, to remove the 
mental health treatment plan that's that's been well used by GPs with with consumers and their families, and to replace it with a digital tool, which involves decision making elements, and that therefore it is a yet to be developed and yet unevaluated assessment tool. And it seems contrary to the acknowledgement of the key role for GPs. I've had yep. some involvement in the development of this digital yep. tool. Yep. Uh, if it's the same one. It's possible. And I have to say that I had expressed concerns. I, I was involved more until the middle of last year, but over this last 12 months, not so much. I was invited every so often to participate and give my feedback. But yes. it really, I wasn't. I, I just really didn't think the process was that great. There was a small group of people who were involved in yep. uh, consumers and carers involved in providing input into the design. But I have to say, I was quite concerned about aspects of it. So I think, you know, and it was, uh, if it's the same one, $33 million had been spent on it over three years. I don't know that it's necessarily a solution to the GP plan. No, because the GP plan that's provides per, That's the person involved yeah, right. in discussing with you, not you uh, sort of self-assessing and answering a bunch of questions that have been put together by... Yeah, they're proposing that the GP and the consumer go through the program, but then the program itself, the digital mental health platform, looks. it looks like it has hidden decision-making tools because it says who you should be referred to, whereas the GP and the consumer are best to decide who they should go to in terms of their care, either a psychologist, a social worker, or occupational therapist that can provide psychological therapy. And and you, you need to be able to have a bit of an argument about that sometimes because yeah. you don't. sometimes you say, no, I don't want to go to that person or that service. I had a bad experience. I heard something that wasn't good about it. I mean, also, the digital yeah. tool that I'm familiar with isn't yep. in other languages other than English. It's only in English. Yeah. So what happens to people from multicultural backgrounds? That's right. Yeah. You know, always this is the last thought. So, uh, yeah, I agree, Jeff. It's concerning. And, I mean, I like those bits of debate with my GP about what well, I need to be doing and... And <laughs> agree. That's what that's what healthcare is about. It's supposed our, to be a therapeutic our job alliance. Is to serve, our job as medical practitioners is to serve the consumers and the community, and we have to work with you. And that that day to day interaction is important. That real world interaction, and trying to sheet it home to a digital tool, and introducing a, in fact a third element with perhaps hidden um, decision making tasks or, or, or capabilities in it, like algorithms. It really runs against the grain of more more engaged, face-to-face, -face, collaborative care about consumers and, and health professionals working together to provide tailored options for people. Mm. The other area I just wanted to flag that was of that was heartening in one way, in that the Productivity Commission has proposed to continue the MBS. Uh, which is the Medicare benefits schedule, telehealth items for psychological therapy and psychiatric services that were introduced in the COVID-19 pandemic. And the best way to see that is that it's an option as complementary to face-to-face -face care. Uh, for example, in my own practice just on last Tuesday, all but one patient had come back to face-to-face, -to -face, which was a big change from earlier in the year. So people clearly 
you clearly prefer, and so do the clinicians, face-to-face interaction because of that fidelity of interpersonal uh, interaction. However, the Productivity Commission has decided to limit for psychiatrists that they can only have 12 MBS rebated telehealth sessions. And that would seem to be a disservice for psychiatrist patients when, in fact, uh, psychologists and social workers and OTs are now up to 20 sessions per year for, for telehealth, but also general sessions. And the cap is actually based on comparisons with the old rural telehealth items that we used to use for outreach to the community, but they were quite restricted because you had to be in specific regional zones based on the Monash uh, rural classifier. So it's not a good baseline comparator. And uh, and our our concern is that that, uh, it, it restricts opportunities for patients because a lot of patients have indicated, for example, I've had patients who, who live just in New South Wales and they say if they're living in Goulburn, it takes them an hour to come out and they're in my waiting room and then, then an hour to get back. So they've lost three hours of their day uh, to, to come to a consultation. And uh, telehealth can be preferable for people in that way, provided we've got a good working relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think telehealth has sort of filled a gap yes. across this this period of time. I don't think you can beat face-to-face. No, but I agree. For, but for people who are in those regional remote yes. or who are vulnerable, I know many, many people yep. who are still not wanting to socially engage because yep. they're concerned. They say, I'm not coming out, I'm not going dancing or doing whatever the activity is. Until the vaccine comes. Absolutely. And then, of course, you know, the vaccine comes with its own question marks. And, yeah. You know, we don't know yet about how all of that's going to work out. Yep. So, yeah, it's a really, it has been a very good option. Yeah, I think it's an option. It's not a replacement. I agree with you, Anya. None of us really want it full time. Though There's even been the advocates that we should keep going to do telehealth. I think it's full, it should be based on consumer preference, what's mm-hmm. suitable for them within the limits of what's safe. Because because some people who might be quite unwell, a face-to-face consultation is, is better in terms of the interaction. But for some people, also privacy reasons, they may prefer uh, telehealth so that they can talk on the phone confidentially in a confidential manner because they can walk outside the house and talk. Whereas if they were on the video then the computer may be sitting in the TV in in the TV room or the main room, and their conversation may be visible to others. Yeah, and but for somebody, a woman who may have gone through domestic like violence, violence, I mean, you know, maybe they're getting out in a way is the you know to have the conversation is really critical to yes. that person getting support. Yes, and 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 sometimes it's just the nature of our you know country. I, I had a patient who was coming in and then they were not able to come in so they were able to give a phone call because they were stuck because we have floods and fires, whatever. The other broader concern about healthcare, uh, mental health care is addressing comprehensively the public mental health system so that we have adequate numbers of acute beds as well as subacute and non-acute beds so that there's a streamlined and supportive patient and so options uh, options in the community yeah. that are outside of the yeah. hospital. Absolutely. Absolutely, we need the options in the community. But also we need to 
avoid the de-hospitalization part of reducing acute beds because people who are in acute illness don't have sufficient care in the emergency departments and then the acute beds. It is necessary that we have more acute beds so that we can have a better consumer experience so that people can flow through back to the community because otherwise we'll get, as we have been, people continuing to present to the emergency department and then being sitting waiting a long time to get a bed which allows them to have the intensive care so then they can go back out into the community. Mm. So there's a bottleneck there. I think that perhaps, I mean, I had an experience a very, very, very long time ago and I've, probably, I've never spoken about it on the air, but uh, I, I woke up one morning and I couldn't remember how to put the kettle on and I had been seeing somebody and they said, would you want to go into the hospital? And I said, yes, I wanted to go in the hospital. I needed to go in the hospital because yep. I couldn't do anything. Even driving myself there was quite quite tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent four days in the hospital in a psychiatric unit. Yep. Um, many people don't think I've had these experiences, but, you know, you don't necessarily talk about this stuff with mm-hmm. strangers, but I'm talking about it to everybody who's listening now. <laughs> But just to make the point that I needed that sort of, I needed that support at that time. I didn't want to stay in there because it wasn't the right environment for me. Uh, And it was also quite tricky to go home without any support. Uh, And this is a long time ago, but nothing seems to have changed terribly much. And we do need, we need to be able to go if we're really struggling to some place where we can be safe and uh, supported, get, supported cared and for. cared for, and also, you know, given a proper assessment and, if needs be, medication or whatever. But also, there might be some step up places we need to go. I mean, I also favoured Jeff, and it's probably not in there, but my son and I have talked about. We really loved when we went out to this farm out uh, out in in the, the bush past yes and it was fantastic remount yeah for people with ptsd which i live with as former serving members and so forth but we thought that we needed something like that for people with mental illness and maybe their carers who get very very burnt out uh at times but a place that's a farm you know like a farm stay or a farm place where you can go and you're in the bush and you can perhaps get him list involved to Those do some jobs. Those innovative options are really important. They're I mean, important they used because to have it's about these, community, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I mean you're there with people nurturing you and it just is maybe you get involved in peeling the spuds and yeah. and doing things and being part of that little community of people there. And perhaps, you know, that could be a really lovely alternative. I know that there's been a number of programs on the ABC uh, about uh, such places, but um, and with farmers potentially taking that up. But I think we need a range of options and choices for people so that they can find the right fit because the whole thing is about recovery, Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's where the report is strongest, looking at social determinants, but also the people... F- being able to work and live appropriately in their community according to their own wishes. And those sort of broader services are helpful. If I might mention just last, and this is a considerable concern because it's actually the broadest area, and because of the economic focus of the Productivity Commission, may in fact be the most consequential. The report advocates for unproven market-based commissioning and regulatory models 
uh, as enablers of reform, they call for the pooling of Commonwealth and state territory funds at a regional level, which will lead to these regional community commissioning agencies, which will oversee all the funding of mental health care within local regions. And these have already failed in the UK, particularly in uh, Scotland and Wales. And they were, according to my colleague, Professor Stephen Kiesley, um, removed once those two uh, states of the UK uh, devolved. They removed these these regional commissioning authorities because they lacked uh, clinical expertise uh, in evidence-based practice and also consumer experience and interaction and also lacked generally in planning services. And the danger is that the proposal now by the Productivity Commission may, may, may now affect even uh, outside of public mental health services. Uh, the, pro- the report had proposed that only allied health, mental health services be included in these pooled funds, but now they're suggesting some extension to psychiatry MBS-rebated services to potentially enable greater influence over their use, which then could be that the regional commissioning authorities then decide whether you see a psychiatrist or for for care and and because they hold the funds for it. But it's more bureaucracy, isn't it? Absolutely. I know you hate that. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's not putting it. If, if, uh, <laughs> that's not being even blunt. That's the damn truth. Um, <laughs> Absolutely, more complexity, more administrative complexity. More administrators yeah. making decisions about care that's supposed to be about somebody's well-being. But they're interfering in that direct interaction between the consumer and the health practitioner. Mm. And that 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 is inimical to to good evidence-based collaborative care. Hmm. Well, I mean, even the PHNs, we've got a CHN here. Yes. Everywhere else is PHNs, but Canberra had to have a C in front. Why? Canberra Health Network. Yeah, that's right. But even some of those, there are ones, there are services that are really fantastic and doing a fabulous job. Yeah. And others that aren't, aren't really engaged and connected right. to the community. I won't mention which ones. But uh, I have it on good authority that there are a few that aren't great, but others that are performing, overperforming. Yep. So, I mean, that it, it's the same. I think it's the suggestion of the same sort of thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and the, perhaps uh, those regional bodies are the PHNs. which Well, they real. will include the PHNs and the local hospital networks in their complex structure. So there will be overlap and they'll be asked to hold funds. In the Appendix G of, of the report, there's actually a formula for how they calculate the funds which is an economic formula for calculation of the funds in that funding pool and so they're very serious about that and that that's the potential concern our overall concern is that there are a number of failed policy directions in and significant amongst good measures that look at employment and factors that are helpful for community for people recovering uh, and this introduces new unnecessary complexities and, as you indicated, uh, bureaucracy. So, I And think we're already all tired yes, of what's been going on for a absolutely. long time. Why introduce more complexity? Why not make it more simple? My, make it easier for people to get help rather than make it more difficult. Yes, increasing, increasing the accessibility... And simplifying services is what we had advocated for in our submissions to the Productivity Commission, trying Mm. to make it a more user 
friendly system. Mm. And the, I think there's a problem with people conceptualizing, particularly in terms of digital or internet options, that they're necessarily accessible. There are a lot of hidden features potentially behind digital technology and assumptions in uh, internet and and digital technology related uh, interventions as well as assessment processes that also are evident in general in our interaction with with uh, with digital technology, which people have raised concerns about. For example, Professor Susanna Zuboff has raised about surveillance capitalism. The other part that hasn't been canvassed in this, and I'm not saying that this is in the report, but something that could be considered an extension from what Professor Zuboff had expressed concern, that basically, in a, in a probably too brief summary of what she had raised in her book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, was that these very large internet-based and digital companies basically collect all our personal data to in fact, monetize it and then try to sell things back to us. They use all our behavioral information. Now, that raises very grave concerns. If we have a digital mental health tool, where is that data going? Who's, who's, who's collecting it? Where, where, you know, who's sharing it? This is a problem that ha- is not, uh, it's not uh, theoretical. There has been, uh, as I understand it, concerns expressed about the UK National Health Service where there was data that was collected from GP practices and also in general medical care that was without, it was anonymized so that people could not necessarily be identified. And I'll come back that, to that in a moment. But that some of that data was also sent to pharma companies to allow them to analyze. Mm-hmm. And the related issue is that, in fact, anonymization of people's data is not as straightforward as people might consider because, in fact, some of the health researchers who were trying to investigate privacy found that a supposedly anonymized data set could, with some detailed analysis, be actually re- or de-anonymized. You could work out where people were living, what they were, you know, where, not their address, etc., but what, you know, what their demographics and details were, which is in some of the data, but also at some level concerning. Yeah, well, I, I know just simply from some of my travels across the internet, how suddenly I get, you know, if I have a look at a page, then suddenly I've got ads advertising me stuff around that. How do they know? They, Where they, are they, they getting this information from? They got the tags. What else are they reading? Yeah. They got the tags there and that's what those cookies are. That's what they've explained to another... I wish uh, I'd just get rid of the cookies. I'm not interested. I'm on a diet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're, they're really tracking you around. Professor Carissa Veliz from Oxford University wrote about privacy and she said that a lot of these uh, cookies are tracking people around the internet, finding, and also you can't easily disable them, particularly on some of the social media um, no, type. No, uh, it's really hard to do that. I mean, Facebook's gone and changed itself. It's a nightmare. I can't find the playlist on there anymore. And I've complained and complained and I'm just one little tiny little... An amoeba in the ocean of distress around how Facebook has changed itself, or and how technology is changing. But uh, it's it's very difficult. I get phone calls too from unknown numbers, Jeff. Yeah. Who are these people? I never gave them my number. No, but they may have harvested them somehow through a cookie. Yeah, so you this can is get it. spam 
spam to your phone. I know. Yeah. I just sometimes I think I just want to go west and be out someplace in an island somewhere. Well, sometimes that that all with di- no phone digital detox is good. Digital, digital detox. detox. Well, my phone's it? broken, so it's I've had a sort of a sort of digital detox. But one of the things I just want to say so, before yes, we leave this absolutely. topic is, at the very beginning, you talked about yep. uh, economic participation yes. of people with mental illness. Yes. You know that worries me. I, I when I did my degree years ago, and I did this little research project that went on for a couple of years. I looked at social inclusion. I looked at the definition of social inclusion yes. or inclusion. And it's all defined in terms around, of work, uh, in terms of work yeah. participation in training and, and everything. But there are so many people that cannot be engaged in any of that. They just can't because of their illness. Certainly. And yeah. I mean, we've just had the International Day of Disability. Can I just say yes. that whole time we had, I never saw anybody on air or in, in any presentation that had a mental illness it was all about people who had physical disabilities right that were presented so i mean here yeah. we go you know it's like mental illness as a disability is the poor cousin of a physical or yeah. intellectual disability so you know it just worries me that we're not looking we're not thinking about inclusion as an issue uh, rather than uh, rather than people being uh, including people in sort of activities that are you know to do not with the arts or community, they're not necessarily work, and, I, and I not would necessarily agree with work. You. I uh, mean, because they build yeah. a person's resilience. Perhaps they can find a new well, they're identity. They're also about the flourishing of people's lives, exactly and that thriving. Enjoy. And some people are not as reason of their dis- due to the disability related to with their mental health or any other health problems. They're not able to work, and certainly mm. as health professionals we recognize that or, or so, there's few yeah. jobs available but that are part-time for people who are intelligent and got degrees but might have a disability not mentioning any names um, <laughs> but it is a problem i mean yeah the, i know, don't think we should assume that people have to necessarily work it's about people's needs their individual uh, individual health problems and whether what also helps them with the with and I meant it the flourishing of their lives, the quality of their lives, mm. the recovery. That's really important to tailor. For some people, a little bit of work is possible for them. Other people want actually a lot of work, and others are so disabled they really try to or live as the, good a life. The cyclical as, nature yeah, yeah, of that's right. It can disrupt uh, the stability of being able to work. Yeah, and uh, particularly during over this period. When people who've never been depressed before yeah. are finding that they're depressed or down or just can't cope or breaking down in tears, yeah. uh, uh, you know, and uh, finding it all very difficult. Look at people in the music industry. A number Absolutely. of friends of mine have not had gigs, not been able to perform, not be able to get out there. Uh, even people who, you know, got small businesses yes. struggling. And, you know, there's so I. Th- I wish that we had reports that were more about the 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 motivations of including people. I don't know what you'd call it. <laughs> yeah, I mean the social inclusiveness social. and and also looking again as you said right at the beginning about holistically at the whole person. Mm. And that's that's where we always try to work in healthcare because as I've said before in the program the purpose of healthcare is simple. It's to serve people to help people mm. and work collaboratively with them 
And any of these commissions have a particular perspective, and this is particularly related to economic activity, participation, and the mm. impacts. I think some of the positive things are they're trying to look at some aspects with workplaces, but as you rightly say, some people are not able to work or even if they want to work, the health their health conditions are cyclical and they cannot or, work. Or another thing that yeah. you hear often from people with disabilities is the environment in the workplace isn't is set up for, for somebody with a disability. Yeah. So it's not. There's no. Oh, I can't think of the words. There's no flexibility. I, I've certainly seen that as a health professional, where mm. I, I've looked after people, where managers or employers were actually not supportive at all mm. some even in my my view obviously from the health perspective i'm not in the workplace so i don't know exactly what goes on there but sometimes it seemed even punitive or discriminatory mm. uh, and, and and it's that's that's very very concerning in the 21st century i am. i thought we were we should be walking working towards a more compassionate kind loving caring society not one that's makes things harder but uh Anyway, we're going to move on. Yes. We're going to go to a piece of music. Yes. This is another one from the Beatles for all the old people out there. Or maybe the young people who've discovered the Beatles. It's called While My Guitar Gently Sleep, uh, Weeps. <laughs> Sleeps. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Surely be learning 
You're listening to Transforming Perceptions. Jeff and I were chatting, so I was happily listening to the tail end of that music and going, ah dee da dee da Oh, we've got to come back on air. There we are. Anyway, <laughs> so, and we were just chatting about how horrible this year has been in the, you know, the drain on people's individual resilience. Uh, and not everybody has uh, resilience. I was just sort of saying... <laughs> makes me wonder and admire my grandmother and people who went through the depression and the second world war and all of those things i mean how did they do it how did they do it we've only been going through this for a year one of the theories is that there has there was more social cohesion during that time because in relation to things like the war there was a a national element to it and people had an ethos together now we can communicate with us each other much more, but it's not necessarily clear that we have the same views on things because we can communicate with anyone in the world and there are lots of different currents. And mm-hmm. it's a matter of having a more pluralistic society who we, who we identify with, how we cohere. Uh, there have been elements because people clearly, under very, very trying circumstances in Victoria, people worked very hard to to get the outbreak down, which was a tremendous effort from the community there, but Mm. also a huge cost Mm. uh, psychologically, economically, socially for them. Mm. So there was solidarity because people just can't do that if they don't work together. So there's a heartening element to it that people do work together. But perhaps it's harder to to sort of discuss or advertise that or, or, or be aware of it nowadays. Hmm. And I think that that's, a, that's certainly an, an element. Hmm. So. I think the nature of COVID, and we are going to talk about the report uh, and dementia and COVID report and the recommendations, um, but the nature of COVID it meant that people were... The language, I mean, yep. socially distancing... I mean, really, we shouldn't be socially distanced. We should be physically distanced. Yeah. Do you think they were saying that during the Depression? You should all be socially distanced. Or, or, or say distancing. That's one way. The problem was that it got in very early and then it was hard to talk about it in another way because it became part of the day-to-day. And if you said something different, like, say, physical distance, people said, uh, what do you mean? Mm. So the, the problem was it was introduced very early and distancing is... is you know, or spacing might be another way to say it. Maybe that's the lesson for next time. Next time. Yeah. Let's hope not. No, well, no. but you're right. It should have been reframed and yeah. into a way that didn't further make people feel yeah. that they were isolated. Because it's not the social element in itself because there are ways of trying and people have tried to maintain communication. However, we do need to keep that physical distance, <laughs> that, that, that social height. The, 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 the f- hygiene in relation to uh, wash, hand washing, etc. And also good, careful you know, surveillance of your environment and make sure that you're not, you're not necessarily coughing on other people or, or, mm-hmm. or potentially a risk to other people. Mm-hmm. So I think the problem is that that isn't, in a way, human nature. We're used to being close to each other. We're used to being... Uh, in enclosed spaces together and and that that gradually fades away with time so it's how to remind people and i i don't know why they came up with the way that they described it as social distancing but there's an element they were trying to capture but it was probably not so 
you know, easy and it's a bit, it's a bit clumsy mm. as well. Mm. Yes, well, they should ask me. I'm very good at coming up with titles for things. <laughs> Next time, <laughs> ask try, me. I try something. Come, I used to work in advertising. I can come up with a snappy title. <laughs> But we're moving on to this report. One day the support was gone, the mental health impact of COVID-19 on people living with dementia, their families and carers. And we've touched on this briefly uh, the last, uh, uh, one of the last times you were on. I think, when was it? In September. Yep. Jeff. And as I said, it's been great having you come in and provide such great information and and, uh, discussion around a lot of these issues. But so we've been talking about aged care. Listeners will know who are regular listeners. We've been talking about it for a long time. Uh, your skills in this area and your research, mm-hmm. Jeff, are phenomenal. Uh, but also we're following up to keep an eye on what's happening to ensure yes. that change does actually occur. And if it doesn't, we'll probably be raising our voices even louder. Even, even more. Even more, that's right. Agreed. There'll be more of it. <laughs> Agreed. And I think the, there are a lot of recommendations that are useful and, and well-meant. And this is, this report was prepared by through the auspices of Dementia Australia, but also Professor Yun Hee Jun, who's Director of Step Up for Dementia Research at the University of Sydney. And uh, this this is a very useful report in terms of recommendations to try and help with the welfare of older people. Uh I think the one of the ones that stands out is critical priority is given to mitigating isolation and loneliness for people living with dementia and family carers by home and residential aged care providers and that the government facilitates this through ongoing mental health and aged care support services. So that's a theme that we've talked about before, but even more important during the necessary distancing and hygiene requirements for covid because a lot of facilities actually went into some form of lockdown, which meant that families couldn't see uh, their, their, their loved ones. It was in the interests of trying to limit the spread of COVID in the community, but the cost was that people were isolated. And even as recently as uh, on the news recently on ABC, I saw in Japan, which is having a third wave, of COVID, oh, oh, are they? they are. They're having a third wave I, of COVID. I've kind of taken a little. I had to take a little step back from everything. They had a third wave of COVID, but their aged care facilities, and I, I'd, I'd never seen an aged care facility like theirs. It was spotless and and beautiful, or, or really nice surroundings for people. Lots of natural light. But the sad part was that the family could only see their loved one through a, a large glass wall. They could talk to each other because. There's excellent technology, but it was behind a glass wall, uh, and there, you know, there there've been some innovative, innovative um, attempts where, and I'm not sure about the actual uh, practicalities because it's quite difficult. But some of the nursing homes in other countries had tried to set up areas where people had, and I'm serious. This is what they did. They put some sort of plastic sheeting so that people could actually it could be cleaned carefully and then people could hug each other through the plastic and then it'd be cleaned down and then somebody else could come through. I think that's actually very hard to manage in terms of infection control. But I that's, think that was in Italy. 
Yeah, maybe that's what it was. That one of the article, yeah, yeah. I, I did, and I posted that that some months back actually. Yeah. yeah. So those those innovative ideas will be really helpful, but also supporting uh, aged care providers with other alternatives to to help. So that that follows on with connect maintaining social connectedness for people in residential aged care, and also trying to limit what they're recommending is limit these lockdowns to as brief as possible to to those that are required to contain immediate risk rather than having an ongoing lockdown that has has as its aim uh, to to reduce the risk but the risk isn't actually immediate that that really odd term which they continue to use like out of abundance of caution yeah they 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 you know they they always use in in that sort of hackneyed way uh, and that's not to criticize that the facilities needed and that when pandemic planning is made as this is a risk that we will potentially f- face in the future now that we've been made aware of the impact of pandemics they need to plan for the emotional psychological and physical well-being of people living with dementia and there should also be some additional mental health funding that supports people living with dementia, their families and carers through outreach programs, counselling services and training relevant workforce. Because one of the issues has been that because of the COVID uh, public health measures, including the distancing and the hygiene, some of the aged care providers had struggled to have enough staff to provide care. And then people were through the aged care system or even as we heard for some of the people who have early onset dementia through the NDIS, they're not able to access services because some of the services were temporarily, effectively very short-staffed because people were on some form of lockdown. And that is really uh, a risk for people who are living with dementia, whether it be early onset or uh, people who are older. So that they, those are really quite useful recommendations and about appropriate workforce training uh, for uh, people who are working with uh, senior Australians and well well, we've talked about this one definitely adequate numbers of staff with the right skill mix are available (laughs) to allow continued visits for people living with dementia in residential aged care but we've we've talked about that in general We've talked about it for a long time and it's just astonishing. And I mean, I think one of the good things that's... How can you say that? How can I say one of the good things when so many people's lives have been lost uh, who are in aged care facilities? Perhaps, you know, the, the, the upside to all the horror, and that's what I'm going to call it, is that finally aged care is is up there and it's something yeah. that the community is aware we need better services and we need better supports and there needs to be more money. More money has been put into has. aged care. But I don't know whether has it created any substantial changes at this point, Jeff? No, I don't think it has necessarily because it's probably still a bit early to be fair. But from the report, uh, how it's been highlighted, which is the sad uh, detail that 70 point, 75.5% of the 
of Australian COVID-19 deaths were from residential aged care facilities. That is of the close to 900 people that sadly passed away with COVID-19. So that, that, that's the sad underlining uh, detail of, of the losses of people. And some of, the, some of the detail from the report about that need for social interaction, not getting that physical hug when I have really needed it the most, not having anyone to have a long conversation with, uh, and for a carer, lack of social interaction, hugging the family, uh, especially since someone became ill with the with the COVID. The most challenging thing might be that they didn't get a visitor because it was impossible, and a lot of home care people were looked after by family, but there were also issues for families in terms of support because people were not able to go to work or they had to you know, work from home, and uh, very, very significant uh, features. I'm just trying to look at some of the quotes which give us some of the personal experiences. My mother lives with me and has dementia. She was not able to attend the day centre and socialise. This affected her. I've noticed a decrease in her cognition. Working in aged care, I noticed a decrease in cognition in the residents. They've lost some skills that they had in contact with the family and volunteers, carer. It must be hard to read off that little device. <laughs> I, it's a high-resolution screen, so it's okay. Some some of the other quotations which are, communicate the, the difficulties that people express is, the restricted visiting has been very difficult. The person in care has significantly deteriorated cognitively, but mm. also likely emotionally, that's a carer. Yeah, now I know that when we had, um, you and I did an interview, or we were together, you were on the phone and Doris was in the yes, studio yes. and she talked about her mum and she, um, you know, my heart went out to her because she was tearful when she was talking about exactly. her mum and how difficult it was for Absolutely. her to go and visit her mum and not be able to hug her. Or it's, it's, it's really, really wrenching. Yeah. I mean, even with my son. Hi, Matthew. I got caught. Shout out to Matthew and to Ralph Nelson and a few other people that I know listen regularly. David, Jane. Just, uh, you know, even my son and I, we've only just had a hug last week. We just stayed away from the hugging. We didn't do yeah, any physical yeah, connection or whatsoever. And that was really, really difficult. It's a but, huge challenge. Yeah. But certainly much more difficult when somebody... Is, Yes, dementia. Dementia. Mm. If I can read out an example from Makera. Finding ways to take my spouse out of the house in a safe way. He gets agitated at times and needs to go for a drive, usually stopping for a coffee, which we could not do during the restrictions. Kara. And uh, I'll just get another example. It has been extremely difficult to access any form of support during the time. As we were waiting for our package to be approved by my, my aged care, we are limited to the resources we can access. There needs to be a more systematic approach to respite care, especially in the context of a global pandemic, carer. We can only agree. Yes, absolutely. So there's really a, a very great need. And that, that's, as we talked about before, the problems of COVID-19 public health measures with the distancing and the hygiene measures, plus the high risk for people who have other health problems in the aged care facilities, in a way superimpose the problems that we'd already talked about with healthcare in in aged care in general 
with a pandemic which was devastating, particularly for people who are so vulnerable. Mm. Both, but devastating physically and psychologically. So um, I think, you know, 20, it says here 20% of carers of people living with dementia in the community state, they would have liked emotional and psychological support. So that's underlining that, that stress on carers. Yeah, but that should be, this is one of the things as a carer, yeah. I mean, there's an organisation here in the ACT that provides some care but, uh, and support, but you've got to access it. It's not like they come out to you. Yep. You know, that's right. You, you've got to find your way to them. You've got to navigate the system. and that's You're going to navigate your way there. That's right. And then you may get there and find that it's not what you need or, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's not straightforward, no. Even looking at things like my age care, because my age care is, of course, you can certainly contact via telephone, but most of the access is online. And that's not that easy for people unless they get assistance. Because even I remember initially at the very beginning when I was volunteering with the AMA, looking at one of the original sites, I said, yes, you can change the font size in the browser, but how many people actually know how to do that who are older? Why don't you just make the default font size a bit bigger to start off with? Mm. <laughs> yeah, simple things like that. But um, I think that we need more outreach. We need more physical connection. I, I'm, I'm going to share that I'm uh, yeah. putting in a submission to the Disability Royal Commission. Yes. And I want to acknowledge uh, Sarah who's helping me with that. I had done the initial uh, yep. part work on that last year with the two staff from Atticus. Yeah. Uh, who came around and we yep. wrote it up. And then uh, when I started to read through it, I couldn't deal with it on my own. Mm. And she rang me up, I think, uh, in September, and I just said, look, just let it all out, I did. Mm -hmm. And I said, I can't deal with this on my own. Yep. What I need is someone who can sit with me and help me to work through this because it's really distressing some of this information yes. that's in here. Yep. And I can't do it on my own. She said, I can do that. That's great. And she's been coming to my house and we've been sitting down there and working on it. And I'm just telling people because if you were ever thinking of putting in uh, a submission, mm. the the support is there. And mm -hmm. But Oof. I think this is what it should be all the time. Yeah. You know, you, you, if you're worried about COVID or worried about anything or perhaps you're just, you know, you've become housebound or perhaps you need somebody to come and, you know, even just someone to pop in and, uh, have a cup of tea and a chat or walk around your garden with you or whatever you're into. Or yes. I think that there needs to be much more outreach support for people uh, who are living with or uh, with a mental illness or caring for somebody with a mental illness. It just makes such an incredible difference to, to, your, um, to how you're coping. And, you know, that person might actually be your link between... Uh, well, the isolation can do things to you. Can uh, really help bridge to can, other people. Yeah, and, and it can fuel back that connection. Well, it can it, yeah. it can decrease depression. Yep. And loneliness. So, anyway, that's my thoughts. So, Jeff, we had our last topic. How much time do we have? Not very much. Uh, we were going to talk about the. Uh, let me see. Where is the media release? New data reveals truth of Aussie technology addi addiction. 
One in every two Australians check their smartphones in the last three minutes before bed and within the first three minutes of waking up. However, the research also showed that three-quarters of Australians are attempting to break the habit this summer spending quality time away from our screens. It revealed that almost three in four Australians, 73%, agree that the use of screens has led to an increase in the prevalence of bullying. Three in four Australians, 74%, agree they are trying to reduce the amount of time they spend on social media. Nine in ten Australians, I think that's 90%, say that social media is the biggest spreader of fake news and misinformation in our society. But it's also, it's uh, the staggering figures really are a textbook addiction. Smartphones are quickly becoming the smoking of the 21st century, Dr. Macmillan said. So this is a, a media release from mainstream. So it is a concern. What are your thoughts, Jeff? I think it's an important issue about the use of technology. And it comes back to how these technologies were designed. And I, I draw back to Professor Zubov's book, which is the Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which talks about how these very large media organizations that involve the internet and digital media, in fact, according to her, are designed to collect information on us so that they can market research and then sell things to us. And then part of their design specifically is that they need to engage us and continue to engage us. So part of the behavioral design of these interfaces is to get people coming back, logging in, keeping informed. You've heard the uh, expression that people fear you know, fear of missing out, FOMO. Mm. They they see these things and why they have these streams is that they are attractive to people because they can see what's going on. So that is an important part of the design. So part of the behavioral design of these uh, media and technologies is to draw people in and can keep them hooked in. You know, it may be an invidious comparison, but you think about those dreadful poker machines and the same sort of process potentially going on that people are not necessarily spending money but there's something they're spending something much 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 more valuable their lives it's leeching people's time from each other so one of the views as a health professional is people should tune out and drop in see people physically engage in things you know, now during COVID, obviously safely, but be with other people and put away the the devices because the devices will always be there. They will always be sending you information because that's part of their design. And that that is part of why people, because they've become part of the social space, that's where the really unfortunate and invidious problems have arisen where People are bullying through the social media because so many people check their social media, so it's an easy way. But even connectivity to the workplace, a lot of expectations have been around people, especially during working from home. Do you keep checking your email? You're trying to do your work and you're working from home. Do you keep checking your email? It's not a very productive way to work if you keep checking your email. And also people feel like they have to respond because they're at home and no one can see them in the office. So it seems that the data shows people working much longer hours 
Yeah, but you know that the I had this in a workplace where I was. Yeah. Where uh, my supervisor was tracking everything that I did. I found it very, very invasive. Surveillance. Yeah. Yeah, it was a surveillance thing, and it really annoyed me. I and I used to get into. I got into trouble for using my own laptop. And the fact I was using my own laptop because I had only a few years earlier finished my degree and I had all this really useful information in my files uh, and stored in various different places. But also had access to all the emails from the organisation and various different things that we discussed with our groups. And it was the same, it was the same project Yes. It was just a different, you know, a different uh, company or a different yep. organisation had taken over that project. Yes. Um, but the whole thing was I really did not like the fact that someone was surveilling me. Absolutely. Even when I was working, you know, at home and then I got into trouble for that. But I mean, I'm, I'm probably, I just don't want to play that game. <laughs> Perhaps that's it. But yeah, I can imagine if people kept checking or being on their emails and doing yeah. all of that to show that they were actually working. That's right. There's a, ri- that's, you know, there's a risk of that being a problem for people. Well, they've even had software where they use to track people's mouse movements and how, how long they're looking at screens on the computer, which would seem to be a, from an a industrial democracy viewpoint, and I'm and one of my disclaimers is that I'm I'm the union secretary for the doctors' union, so it, it seems quite intrusive and unnecessary because uh, you don't know why someone's mouse. If they knock the mouse around, then it'll move. And then, of course, it's also possible with these technologies you could write a program that makes your mouse move around. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so the the point of it is that. Is, is that they're being unnecessarily intrusive and not trusting people. And certainly in a, in, a, in a management setting where in the experience of working with people in healthcare uh, and also in, in research organizations, my personal view, uh, and it is based on some evidence of how people interact, is if you actually work with people, treat people well and trust them, they will usually outperform your expectations. There's always going to be the risk that somebody is going to game the system. But mm. if you treat everyone as if they're going to game the system, everyone mistrusts you mm. and you have no productivity. Mm. People don't have good quality of work. Mm. So I think that that's been uh, a concern because you can achieve good things with the technology during the distancing. Uh, for example, at our medical school, we are able to maintain the teaching for all the students in psychiatry and addiction medicine and largely successfully from the student's viewpoint because we know that the performance was commensurate with previous years, we were able to do the exams via remote video technology to help with the distancing. And the students worked very hard. Yes, we went through the whole process there. Did it go okay, Jim? And that's what I meant. The the results were commensurate with other years. So that's very reassuring. The students were doing well in quite trying circumstances. We were able to conduct a full suite of examinations during the time. Students were still seeing and working with patients and, and uh, consumers uh, through the time with the help of all our colleagues in psychiatry and addiction medicine. But that was really a good adaptation of technology uh, mm. because also, paradoxically in a way, they have learning telehealth because they were doing things like an interview via, <laughs> via, via, via video, which is actually a good skill 
for for any Australian or international doctor to have because Australia's so big. Mm. Uh, mm. And certainly in he- mental health care, that's one of the useful ways of interacting. It's not a replacement, as we talked about, mm. but that so they're they're good adaptations of technology. But I think that these concerns are something very important for society and mm, particularly with children because children yeah. working from home yep. have uh, been using their tablets and the computers and then becoming very familiar with the use yes. of these and unfortunately some of the kids are now going into other spaces and, and right. being on the computer too long and it's been there's been reports that Parents are quite worried about that. Absolutely. And uh, I know of a few young people who are gaming all day long and playing Absolutely. games and so yeah. far for various different games. But getting out in the fresh air is just the same as in the good old days. It's better to get out and do something and... Uh, Tune out, drop in. Tune out, drop in. I, I just realised that I'm addicted to television last <laughs> night. No, I know it sounds ridiculous, but when I was a kid, the thing when it when my parents just wanted us to shut up because there was four of us, yes, and we couldn't go outside. Right. Maybe it was raining. TV, yeah. We they'd sit us down in front of yeah. the television, Absolutely. and it is my how many people in our age group? Yeah, it's the chill out yeah. way yeah, to the, wind down. Yeah, the turn on the television in the background. A lot of people have the television I on do. in the background. I do in the house because it also gives some sense of sound companionship for some people. So it's it's not to be dismissed. I think it is in, an important issue about connectivity. But it is, but yeah. I mean, there's other things. I've I've started doing some sewing. I made all these. I had all these cuttings from the yeah. prunings up the back. And they were there in a huge pile. It was freezing outside. And I went out and I just started weaving them together. I've made eight wreaths, which I'm now trying to decorate. But I can tell you, yeah, I was standing there for an hour and a half in the freezing cold. But I was really enjoying what I was doing with my hands. Physically I didn't have to think about what was bothering me. It was just like somehow or other it deals with stuff. So another way of actually... Uh, addressing stress or worry or, you know... Creativity, it's craft, it's physical engagement. And that's been advocated by, mm. uh, you know, in, in a number of settings like Matthew Crawford's book, Shop Classes, Soul Craft, that was mainly around mm. men, but it was talking about working physically and he was talking about repairing antique motorbikes and how, how engaging that was. And he came from working in, in a sort of think tank to having been unemployed in a way and then looking for other jobs, working on motorbikes. And he found it really satisfying to work with repairing these motorbikes because there was something really, in a sense, as he said, spiritual, engaging about working with. So that's why he said shop classes, soul crafts. So it's an interesting book. And also Professor Sherry Turkle at MIT, who investigates the aspects of uh, digital communication technology, she wrote something, uh, uh, Reclaiming Conversation, which I mentioned before on the program, but also related to this engagement that some younger people have and also older people can too, just with the internet and these other technologies. And the poignant example she gave was of a young man who was playing a lot of games and he, he, he was saying, I've got these screens, these windows on the world, and there's a win- window in my, uh, you know, in my house, but 
the screen, the 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 the, the computer screen, that's the better window. Oh. And that, that was quite a telling. He's a very clearly a very intelligent, thoughtful young man, but the computer screen was more more interesting than the window out into the world. Wow. And that's really that's really a con- confronting. We will have idea. to talk about this a little bit yeah. more sometime because we uh, sadly we've got to wind up. But yeah, it's been really great. Thank you so much for coming in. I, I always appreciate uh, you coming in and giving me your time. And uh, yeah, so thank you very much, Jeff. And I think we've provided lots of information. If uh, if you don't have a, a supportive person or someone you trust that to speak to and you are struggling, the important thing to do is to reach out for help and you can call Lifeline 13114. If you're under the age of 25, Kids Helpline can assist. 1800 55 1800. 1-800-55-1800. And I'm always advocating for the New South Wales Transcultural Mental Health Centre's website, which has got the best info on it, uh, properly uh, observed in terms of translation and so forth. Uh, so New South Wales Transcultural Mental Health Centre website, and there's information there on COVID, but also on mental health and well-being. And uh, thanks, Jeff. Thanks again for having me, Anya, and congratulations for the long-going program. It's, it's been, it's been a very know. interesting decade. Oh, oh, yeah, I'm pretty tired, though. So, anyway, we're going to go out on a Christmassy thing. Um, have yourself a very lovely Christmas. I'll be back next weekend, either pre-recorded or live. And, uh, yes, take care of yourselves. Shlonawalia, as they say in the garlic. <laughs> Cheers. yourself a merry little Christmas let your heart be No
Right now.